Welcome to the Ray of Hope Church podcast. We believe that hope changes everything, so get ready for an encouraging message from the Word of God. We pray that you would receive wisdom and revelation as you grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this week, I had a birthday. I turned 39 again. And so I got a card, and I want to share my birthday card with you today. And uh, it says, ways to tell you're getting older. You think libido is an Italian pasta. (laughs) The tooth fairy has more teeth than you do. You wake up with that awful morning after feeling, and you didn't do anything the night before. You drink prune juice on purpose. You sit down to breakfast and hear snap, crackle, and pop, and you haven't even poured the milk yet. Your pharmacist calls you by your first name. Your sweetie says, want a neck, and hands you a piece of chicken. Y'all are so holy. You can remember the Dead Sea when it was only sick. That means you're old. Stand with me this morning. What a great time we've already had this morning. Amen. I feel the presence of the Lord. We're starting the series this morning called The Holy Spirit. And I want to do something a little bit differently, approach it a little bit different. Today is Pentecost Sunday, and we want to celebrate the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. But we want to do it very biblically. We want to just lay a foundation, and I'm going to start probably at a place you don't think I'm going to start. But let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your mercy, what we already feel, what we've already experienced today. Thank you for that, Lord. It has energized us and and equipped us. And Lord, we're just grateful for that. So Lord, help us to have your word come into our heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm glad you're here today. There's a lot of confusion about the work and the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit. A lot of times we know about the fatherhood of God and the sonship, but we don't have a lot of information sometimes about the Holy Spirit. And along denominational lines, it's either a feast or famine sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes it's way over here, we don't hear much or experience anything, and over here we're creeping up the wall and hanging off the chandeliers and uh, you know we're the twirling dervish but we don't feed the sick or we don't you know evangelize or anything like that the church doesn't grow somewhere in the middle we find the real relevance of what the word of God says you know it's not here or there how many of you know it's right here that's where it's at so where do we begin to begin this revelation of the Holy Spirit it actually is in the beginning so take your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, the abyss. And here we see the Holy Spirit moving in creation. So the Holy Spirit is introduced to us, we we see the moving and the presence of the Holy Spirit immediately as the Word of God begins. Now, you don't get very far, Genesis chapter 2, so we just go another uh, chapter. So here we are, God creates the heavens and the earth, He gets everything ready. After every day, it is good, right? Then on the sixth day, He creates man. So we find this in verse 7, chapter 2, And the Lord formed man of the dust of the earth. 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being or a living soul. The word there is nefesh, which means a soul. So you have a soul, and your soul is a container. How many of you know your soul can contain good things, and it can contain bad things? But at the beginning, God breathed. It's the word ruach for breath or wind, which is the word we have for spirit. Now, when we get to the New Testament, it's the word pneuma, which means wind or breath or spirit. So those are the two words, Hebrew and Greek. So I want to give you a foundation. And if you're here this morning and say, well, I just want the real um, relevant part. Sometimes we don't have the theological basis of it. We don't know how to apply what God's given us. So we got to get it down. So, so hang in with me a little bit, and, and we'll get to the other stuff in week two or three or four or five or whenever this ends, okay? So I have no timeline on this. I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit lead us about the Holy Spirit. That'd be all right? Okay. Now, here God is. He breathes into Adam, and Adam becomes a living soul. But God said something to Adam. He said, now, Adam... He said, you can do anything you want in this garden. You can have everything in creation. This is all for you. How many of you know he gave mankind dominion over everything? He says, this is yours. There's only one stipulation. How many of you would like to have one rule in your life? Now, come on. That is so weak, it's pathetic. How would you like to have one thing you could not do in your life? That's what they had. God said, this is all yours. You can do anything you want. Just don't eat of the fruit of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only thing. Now, th this begs to have this question asked. What is God doing giving us one rule? Why didn't he just not give us any rules? You can do anything you want to. There, there's no rules. You, you can't choose to do bad because... This is my philosophical statement here. You can either accept it or reject it. Okay? You are a free moral agent. You can make decisions. You can choose, right? You, you have the power of choice. True love can only be true love if we have the power to choose. So if I only have to love you and I have no other choice but to love you, that's not real love. But we have the choice to love. Now, that being said, for the Lord to say, okay, I'm going to give you the choice or I'm going to make you a free moral agent, you have the ability to decide. But if there's nothing to decide, there's really no point in this, is there? I mean, if there's nothing to exercise your free will, then it's not free will at all. I don't even know what I'm saying. So God says, okay, I'm going to give you free will, but to have free will, you have to have something to exercise that free will. So I'm going to give you one thing to exercise free will is don't eat of this tree. We messed it up. Adam and Eve ate of the tree. You know the story. They fell. And uh, when God would have this perfect communion with them in the garden... He would come down in the cool of the evening. He would walk with them. They would have fellowship together. Then one day God showed up and Adam didn't meet his appointment. And God said, Adam, 
Where are you? How many of you know God already knew the answer to the question he just asked? God doesn't ask questions. He doesn't know the answer before he asks it, okay? Where are you? And Adam said, well, I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Well, I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? Adam knew the moment he ate of that forbidden fruit, something left him. The intimate, glorious presence of God left him. Now, the Lord said, when you eat this, you shall surely die. Now, when he ate it, he didn't just fall over dead, but the process of death began because that life-giving spirit that was breathed into him animated the body, but the spirit that was the Holy Spirit, that was that intimate relationship, and I'm going to just kind of show you something on the back end of this, began to leave the moment that sin entered in to Adam and Eve and the world that we live in. And you and I are suffering the consequences of that today right now. But that's not the way God created it. He breathed into Adam a portion of himself and he wanted Adam and Eve to live in that intimate relationship with him. Charles Spurgeon said this, Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are ships without the wind, branches without sap, and like coals without fire, we are useless. Now, Adam lived. He could do some things, but how many of you know he's not what he was supposed to be? It wasn't the way God created it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, Paul picks this up, and I want you to catch it. Paul picks it up. He says, In Adam all die. Every person after Adam, is born with this sin nature, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. So we all have the sin nature. Even so in Christ, all shall be made, made, uh, made alive. So in Adam we die, in Christ we're made alive. Now drop down to verse 45, chapter 15. The first man, Adam, everybody say Adam. Adam. Now, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, now Jesus is called the second Adam or the last Adam. So if you go through the genealogy, it says Adam who is the son of God. So he's the created son of God. But Jesus Christ is the begotten son of God, right? So we have the first Adam who lost it, who, who sinned. Now we have the last Adam or the second Adam. And he became a life-giving spirit. Say that with me. Life-giving spirit. King James says quickening spirit. What does that mean? That he became a life-giving spirit. It means what the first Adam lost, the second Adam regained for us. Isn't that good news? Now, this is something interesting because we know through Scripture what Jesus is going to do. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist came baptizing, and this is what he says. He says, I can baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, greater than me, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, the Holy Ghost and fire. Now, Jesus is the baptizer. Now, we're going to see something here very, very interesting. In John chapter 20, Jesus rises from the dead. One of the first encounters, if not the first, 
with his disciples. The women, they, they, they see him in the garden, right? They go tell the disciples he's risen. There's a little skepticism there if he has risen. They run to the tomb. He's not there. They go back, lock the doors. They're afraid the Romans and the Jews may kill them. And boom, who appears? Jesus does. Watch this. He appears and he says this. Peace be to you. Would that not freak you out? Doors locked, windows shut. You're in there. And all of a sudden, boom, there he is. And he says, hey, how you guys doing? Peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. You see any connection here? What did God do to Adam to make him a living soul? He breathed into him. What did Jesus do after his resurrection to his disciples? He breathed on them. Why did he breathe on them? Because of the pattern that has already been set. It was never God's will for you and I to ever live without the Holy Spirit within us. Amen? It was never God's will for you and I to live without the Holy Spirit. Without his intimate personal spirit within us it was never God's will but sin interrupted the will of God what's Jesus doing he's coming back to restore what should be I'm about to get excited this morning okay now this is also interesting when Jesus is on the cross he's given his life given his blood dying for our sins the last thing that he cried out with a loud voice is what it is finished but the Bible says in Matthew 27 when he cried out with that loud voice he did something he gave up his spirit now your attention please they did not take his spirit from him he gave it up no man takes my life from me. I willfully lay down my life for the sheep. He gave up his spirit. The moment he gave up his spirit, you know what happened in the temple? The veil was rent from top to bottom. Okay? That veil was there, and many of you know this. There was an outer court, there's an inner court, there's a holy place, candlesticks, showbread, laver. I mean, we, we got all kind of stuff as you go in and out. But there's this inner sanctum called the Holy of Holies. There's this place where the Ark of the Covenant sits. I mean, we're talking to Indiana Jones stuff here. The, the Ark of the Covenant setting here, the wings of the cherubim, and the high priest would go in once a year, basin of blood, day of atonement, sprinkle the blood for the sins, roll them ahead for another year. They, they, they would do the sacrifice, they would shed the blood, they would sprinkle the blood, and there between the wings of the cherubim was the Shekinah presence of God. But can I tell you, it was never God's will for his presence to dwell in a temple like that. You said, well, how, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, I'm glad you asked me. Because in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen's given his apology before he dies, 
I want to read something to you. Verse 48. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Now, what he does, he goes all the way back to Isaiah 66, picks up verses 1 and 2. He says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? My hand has not, has not my hand made all these things. This is what he's saying. I know you built a temple. I know this is kind of the thing we did. But that was never my will. My will is this. You are my temple. So when the veil rent, that was showing that God really didn't want to dwell in a man-made temple. The Bible says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When did we become the temple of the Holy Spirit? With Adam, it was day one. But sin caused that to stop. Now, through Jesus Christ, through the atonement, the blood, the sacrifice, by faith accepting Him, now we have the ability to become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that good news? Wonderful news. Great news! Now, let me throw another wrench into your theology here. Everybody all right? Getting anything out of this? Do you remember when Elijah was caught up to heaven? He, he's going to cross Jordan. You know, we have a kind of a saying here, when you cross Jordan, that's like death, isn't it? You cross the chilly waters of Jordan. Very poetic. So Elijah crosses the Jordan. Elisha's following him. You know what Elisha is after? He's after the Spirit. Correct? I want a double portion of your Spirit. But it's really not Elijah's Spirit, is it? It's the Spirit of Almighty God. Now they cross the Jordan. They get over there. A fiery chariot separates the two prophets. He's being sucked up in the vortex of a whirlwind. What a sight that would have been. He's going up to heaven. But Elijah kind of gives Elisha the insight of how to receive that double portion of the spirit that he has. He said, if you see me go up, and here's something symbolic here. Remember the mantle of Elijah? Symbolic of the prophet's anointing. And he drops it as he is going to heaven. Picture in your mind this, this mantle kind of wafting down through the, the clouds and the sky and the atmosphere. And all of a sudden, you know, Elisha's getting in position where he, he, can, he can get it and, and grab it. And, and so as Elijah goes up, the mantle comes down. Do you realize in Acts chapter 1, Jesus went up? He ascended. Now, uh, Elijah had to have the power of God to get up there. Jesus ascended under his own power. So here he is. He's going up into heaven. And in, Hebrew, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, He who ascended gave gifts unto men. Do you realize that the mantle of Jesus is so large, one person doesn't just get it? The mantle of Jesus is so large, anybody who gets under that mantle can receive something. Jesus said this. He says, the Holy Spirit will not come until I go up. 
That's what he said. And he says, when I go up, he says, the Father will send the Holy Spirit in my name. So as Jesus went up, the Holy Spirit came down. As Elijah went up, the anointing came down. As Jesus went up, the anointing went down, and he gave gifts unto men. The Holy Spirit is a gift. And then there are gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we are seeing through Scripture the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit from Genesis to maps. Can I hear an amen? So when someone tells me, well, that's what happened 2,000 years ago and that doesn't happen today, hey, they need to reread the Word of God. Now, I said all that to say this. (laughs) You and I see literally, symbolically, metaphorically, the work and the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. Take your Bible to Matthew 25. i got a lot to share with you in 15 minutes. Somebody say, pray for that man. In Matthew 25, we have the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. It's very um, mysterious, to say the least. But Jesus did not give this to us for us to scratch our head. We're going to glean as much as we can from this parable. The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should be not enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. While they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went out, uh, went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, Matthew 25 is part of the Olivet Discourse. In 24, Jesus is with the disciples on the Mount of Olives that are looking across the Kidron Valley. They're looking at the Temple Mount. And uh, they're marveling, you know, how big it is, how large it is, how wonderful it is. And Jesus makes this statement. He said, there shall not be one stone left on another on this Temple Mount. And it's huge. Listen, it's acres. They can can house tens of thousands of people in that area. We've walked in that area. We've been in that area. You, You could take tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. I mean, it's acres and acres there on top of uh, that temple mount. And Jesus said, there will not be one stone left upon another on top of this temple mount. And they asked some direct questions. Okay, when are you coming? What are the signs of your appearing? And he begins in Matthew 24, and he begins to give them the signs of his coming. And in chapter 25, he gives us this parable about the ten virgins, five wives, Uh, Five wise, five foolish. Now, in this, one of the main points is this. He will probably delay his coming. How many of you know it's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come yet? So he wasn't saying he was coming 
uh, tomorrow or the next day or the next day. Aren't you amazed at those who always are setting dates when Jesus is coming? You think people would be smarter than that. Because look at the end of this. No one knows the day or the hour that he's coming. Let me give you that in the Greek. No one knows the day or the hour that he's coming. So why do people give you 88 reasons why he's coming in 88? And when he doesn't come in 88, he gives you 89 reasons he's coming in 89. How many of you just quit listening to those prognosticators? Because this is what we know. Nobody knows the day or the hour. I, I can tell you exactly when he's coming. In an hour you think not. That's when he's coming. Because that's what he said. So he's saying, okay, the bridegroom is coming, but you don't know when he's coming, so you've got to be ready. So he gives us this parable about these ten virgins. Now, here's these virgins. Five wise, five foolish. They all look the same. They're all waiting. They all have lamps or vessels for light. But the difference is the oil. Just saying. The difference is the oil. Do you realize oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit in Scripture? So the difference is the oil. You see, for a person to really be regenerated, born again, according to John 3, you have to have the Holy Spirit to regenerate you. You can't dress... <laughs> i got to be careful. <laughs> you can't dress up to get saved. Now, you may get redressed after you're saved. But dressing up in the right stuff won't get you saved. Okay? You, you can't on your own change your behavior to get saved. You can't do enough good works to get saved. There has to be a, a, a God process, a wind blowing, as Jesus said. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. You can't see it, but you know it's there. Guess what he's talking about? He's talking about your conversion experience and the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life. And listen, you may have the lamp, you may have the label, but if you ain't got the oil, you're not going. You say, well, why would you say that? I'm just repeating Jesus. So we got to be careful here because... If you look at what the oil does, it illuminates, correct? We need the illumination to know where we're going. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And lamps are useless unless we have oil in them, right? We, we, we can't burn the lamps. So the, the Bible says here that these virgins are going out to meet him. What hour is it when they go out? Midnight. I'm kind of thinking... When Jesus comes back, it's going to be a dark hour for the world. What, what do you think? It's kind of getting dark around here now. If you watched the news last night, another terrorist attack in London, England, and 
goodness gracious, we're living in a very evil, dark world. It's getting darker and darker and darker, but may we, the church, get lighter and lighter and brighter. Amen? So I'm not a doomsday preacher. I'm just saying, in the midst of the darkness, let's get brighter, church, okay? So here they are. They have their lamps, but they have to have the oil. And there was a time where they wanted to get oil, but how many of you know the door shuts too late? Get filled up today. So, what do we know about the Holy Spirit? John 14, turn there very quickly, and I'm going to wrap this up. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God working personally in your life. Now, Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit in John 14. He abides with us, he dwells with us, and he will not leave us. How many of you know that's good news? Let me repeat it. He abides with us. He dwells with us. He will not leave us. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Is anybody here need any help? Okay, I'm looking at you. You look like you need help. We all need help. Now, now here's the good news. The help that we have, the, the help that we can receive, is not just help for your Christian walk, although that's wonderful and great. It, it, it's help in parenting, it's help in marriage, it's help in business, it's help with raising you know, your kids, it's, it's, it's help in every area of your life. How many of you know we need help in every area of our life? You, you need help in your health, you need help uh, getting through, you know, a tough day. I left work Wednesday, I was sick, and I hardly ever get sick. I'm one of the healthiest persons I know. But Wednesday afternoon, I'm telling you what, I drove home and uh, I went to the porcelain altar. And I was so sick. And I'm laying there in the bathroom floor and I'm thinking, I need help. I tell you what, there, there's areas everywhere in your life you need help. You're not invincible. You're not superwoman. You're not superman. I know you're wonderful, but you're not that wonderful. If you didn't need help, we wouldn't have the Holy Spirit. He's our comforter, spirit of truth. The world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be sent in Jesus' name. He will teach us all things and bring all things to our remembrance. Now, that's what he said about the Holy Spirit in John 14. Now, fast forward over to John 16. We're going to skip 15, and I'm going to turn there with you, and we just want to look at just one passage here. This is John 16. Drop down to about uh, verse number... Um, let, let's go down to verse number 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's expedient for you that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Comforter will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Every one of us here have felt this reproving, this conviction of sin. So Jesus is telling us the working and the purpose of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Every sane person on this planet has felt the convincing of sin of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say the Holy Spirit will condemn you in your sin. He said the Holy Spirit will convince you of your sin. 
There's something about you that God put in you. It's called a conscience. And the Holy Spirit will work on your conscience, and you will know without the Ten Commandments, without somebody preaching to you, what is right and what is wrong. Paul picks it up in Romans. He says, we'll be judged by our own conscience. The Holy Spirit will work on your conscience to convince you of sin. When you do something wrong, you don't have to have anybody to tell you that's wrong. Have you ever had a little child, even a two-year-old, do something wrong, break something, and go hide it? Who taught them to do that? They know. And they're convinced of it. One day, the boys, for some reason, and if you got boys, you know this. They were playing golf in the living room. Golf in the living room. How male is that? And at this, this time, we, we replaced them since then, but we had these uh, ceiling fans that had some, some, some very nice uh, clear glass in panels around the light fixture. Well, the golf ball goes through one of those glass panels, shatters it. So the boys look at me, and I said, ooh, it's not good. So we clean up the glass, and they said, what do we do? I said, don't do anything. Just don't do anything. And one day, Carrie is cleaning the glass on the bottom of the ceiling fan. There's two in our living room. And one looks so clean because it's not there. She says, what happened to this glass? And I said, well, the other days the guys were playing golf in the living room. They well, I playing golf in the living room, and they, you know, broke it. Uh, immediately, when we do something wrong, we just know, this is wrong. And the Holy Spirit begins to convince us that this is wrong. This is perfectly laid out the day the Holy Spirit falls. Let me show you something. Acts 1, what happens? Jesus goes up, Holy Spirit does what? Comes down. So, Jesus is showing himself alive for 40 days. Go back to the upper room. Wait for the promise of the Father, which I told you about. You should have received power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. For 10 days, they're in the upper room. They're waiting. They're tearing. They're praying. One mind, one accord. Boom. Day of Pentecost arrives. The Holy Spirit comes down. Uh, they begin speaking tongues. Tongues like a fire rest upon them. They leave the upper room, hit the streets, and immediately people have an issue with the Holy Spirit. They're still having issues with the Holy Spirit today. Can I hear an amen? So, they asked Peter if these people are drunk. And they, they said, what, 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 does this, what does this mean? And Peter preaches the first sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. He says, this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last day saith the Lord, I pour my spirit on all flesh, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. So he preaches the entire message. And in the message, he talks about them crucifying Jesus Christ. And notice this, immediately when he finishes the message, here's the line. They were pricked in their hearts. Or we would say they were convinced in their hearts. Or they felt something happen in their heart. What is that? This is exactly what we've been talking about. The Holy Spirit was convincing them of where they stood with God. Immediately, the Holy Spirit is convincing where they stand with God. And the next question, what was the first question? 
What does this mean? Here's the next question. What shall we do? What does this mean? Preaches the word. What shall we do? You know why we preach the word? For that to happen. That's why we preach the word, for that to happen. The word without the spirit is incomplete. Jesus said, my words are life, and they are spirit. That's why we need to preach the word and allow the Holy Spirit to convince hearts. Because if we just constantly preach about sin, you know what's going to happen? You're going to go sin more. You say, well, that's not right. Sure it's right. Someone said in the early service, you, you, you preach a lot of super sermons about sin, you'll have a bunch of super sinners. I'm not saying we don't preach about sin, but you know what we need to preach more about is the remedy for sin and the solution for sin. Not that we shouldn't preach against sin or the consequences of sin, because we'll get into this later, but he says there can, we're here, and, and these are the things that, that we're covering. He says the Holy Spirit is going to convince the world of sin, and then he says later of judgment. So you don't leave judgment out, but the first thing is you, you convince the world of sin. You're, you're not where you're supposed to be. You're not who you should be. Amen? How many of you have ever heard of the flagship inn in Galveston, Texas? Anybody heard of it? A few of you have. Uh, I've been there a couple of times. I don't think it's been in operation for years and years and years. It may not even be up now. But out on the, the, the outskirts of Galveston Island is a huge hotel. It was called the Flagship Inn. And you had to walk across a pier to get to it because it was built over the water. Now, they had a few problems of people fishing out of their hotel window. This is a true story. So they would fish out of their hotel window, and uh, th they had a couple of instances where they would have the big lead weights on the bottom of their line, and as they were pulling up, they would break some of the windows out of the hotel rooms on the lower levels. So they decided they were going to put up little signs in the, uh, the, the rooms that were on the outer part of the hotel, in the rooms it says please no fishing from your hotel window guess what happened they had more fishing from the hotel windows because <laughs> people said wow I can fish from my hotel window I never thought about that so the Holy Spirit convinces us this is not right. This is not what we do. doesn't condemn us, but convinces us this is what we shouldn't do. But convinces us of this is what we should do. Now, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, everybody say spirit. spirit. You can't see a spirit. You can see the effects of a spirit. You can't see the wind. That's what the Holy Spirit is compared to, the wind. You can't see the wind. Now, you've said this, and I've said this. Boy, look at that wind blow. You never saw the wind. You saw the effects of the wind. You saw the trees down, the, 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 the dirt kick up, the, the leaves rustle. But you didn't see the wind. You didn't know where it came from. You didn't know where it was going. That's exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 3. I love this story. It's an old story. A young boy is 
got a kite, a big kite, strong, strong cord to it. It's a blustery day, high wind. He's got that kite. He's got it way up. I mean, that kite is way up in the clouds. And a man comes by and he says, son, you flying a kite? He said, yes, I am. He said, man, that thing's up there somewhere. He said, how do you even know it's up there? He said, I can feel it tugging on my line. That's the way you feel the Holy Spirit. That's the way you feel the Holy Spirit. You may not understand it. Can't see. But this is what I know. You can feel the tug and the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you probably, if you know the Lord, felt that very intensely when you gave your life to Jesus Christ. Why was the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart? Because the Bible said, Jesus speaking, said, He shall testify of me. Why is that so? The Holy Spirit is saying, there's the Savior right there. You need Him. You can't be saved without Him. So if you're here today and you feel that in your, your heart, your life, and I felt it, guess what's happening? He's testifying of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. The only Savior. And you feel that tug? You feel that pull? That's the Holy Spirit. Bow your head with me. We are so thankful you joined us today. We would love to hear from you at rayofhopepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know how you are encouraged and how we can pray for you. Remember, Christ in you is the hope of glory, and hope changes everything.